This podcast is brought to you by the Dunfield Retirement Residence, a casually elegant retirement community located at Young and Eglinton in the heart of Midtown Toronto. Customized living options complement your independent, active lifestyle. Learn more at thedunfield.com. By, by banning the menorah, that is politicizing Hanukkah. We are calling here today for the immediate and unconditional release of all our hostages held in Gaza. Bring them home! Bring them home! I reiterate my profound regret for my error in recognizing an individual in the House during the joint address to Parliament of President Zelensky. In addition, Since October 7th, we have recognized uh, the terrorist attack by Hamas uh, that killed well over a thousand innocent Israelis, and we have recognized Israel's right to defend itself. But at the same time, the cost of justice cannot be the continued suffering of all Palestinian civilians. Do you recognize some of the new sounds from the past year's big news stories that we've covered for you here at the CJN Daily? From the former Ukrainian Nazi soldier receiving a standing ovation in the House of Commons, and then the scandal forcing the Speaker, Anthony Rota, to resign in disgrace to the Moncton Menorah scandal. And October 7th, of course, which changed everything, at least for Jewish people, and our coverage since then, which has been laser-focused on the Middle East. Israel's Black Sabbath, the terror attacks that killed 1,200 people, including eight Canadians at least, Israel declaring war, the hostage-taking, and the disappointment and sometimes downright anger from Jewish leaders about some of the policy positions that the Trudeau government has taken lately on the Israel-Hamas war, both at home and in the recent vote at the United Nations. And we've also tried to keep up with the explosion of anti-Semitism now confronting Canadian Jews from coast to coast. The Prime Minister has done a lot of year-end interviews with major Canadian journalists, and I've been asking for one for months, but to no avail. But I will keep trying, maybe next year. In the meantime, as 2023 comes to a close this week, it's time to bring in our trusty CJN Daily political experts to evaluate how well or in many cases, how poorly Canada's elected leaders have handled these big issues, especially from the Jewish community's perspective. And we'll get them to make their predictions for the new year. I'm Ellen Besner, and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like for Tuesday, December the 26th, 2023. Welcome to the CJN Daily, a podcast of the Canadian Jewish News, sponsored by Metropia. So will Prime Minister Justin Trudeau take a walk in the snow this coming winter and retire when he gets back from Jamaica? Or will he stay in office and try for a fourth term? Will Pierre Poilievre pick up all the Jewish votes because of his steadfast support for Israel? Or which politician might surprise us all? To unpack it, who better than the insiders with the Conservatives, the Liberals and the NDP? Joining me now from Toronto are Stephen Adler, a former Conservative Party insider, now a senior director with National Public Relations. Emma Cunningham is a former Ontario NDP riding president who left her party over anti-Semitism. She's now a Durham District School Board trustee and she's in Pickering, Ontario. And David Birnbaum is a former Liberal member of Quebec's National Assembly for the riding of Darcy McGee. He retired from politics last year and he joins from Montreal. Welcome back. It's nice to see you again. Thank you. It's nice Pleasure to, to see you. you all. Thank you. Well, if we would have thought when we set this political panel up uh, last year that the world would have changed, and I'm not talking about COVID, I'm talking about for Jewish people, 
I mean, people would not have believed that this is where we're at now with we're almost three months into the Israel-Hamas war and all the ramifications that it's had on Canadian politics. But there were other stories, too, that happened this year, although no one remembers any of them because right now we're laser focused. But I know that we have to talk about those. So let's start with stories that are front of mind, front page first, which is, of course, the Israel-Hamas war and Canada's position and all the fallout. Uh, I want to start, we'll do a round table and just ask, we'll go with Stephen first because you're the top left of my screen, not left of the political sphere, but left on my screen. What has been the biggest story for you this year in terms of Israel Hamas and its impact on Canada? I think the biggest story for me has been the disconnect between what the government says at 9 a.m., than what they may say at noon, than what they may say at three o'clock. Governments don't live in a vacuum and stories move, but I have not seen for a long time coming out of a meeting, someone saying one thing, and then it feels like 20 minutes later, the polar opposite being released by a bureaucrat, by an ambassador to the UN, or by a political staff member. I recall, I want to say three, four weeks ago, the prime minister coming out of a Jewish community event showed his complete support for the community, which is wonderful. It is needed. And across the board, we're seeing it. And less than an hour later, um, you know, a ministry, a ministry of foreign affairs statement coming out that wasn't as balanced as what he said. To me, that's the biggest surprise that these games are still going on. David, um, from Quebec, your perspective, what is the biggest takeaway that has been on your radar for the Israel-Hamas story in terms of how it's playing out here at home? This is such a, a, a difficult and, and uh, profoundly tragic situation we're all dealing with. I, I might surprise you. I think I would note uh, in all the chaos and tragedy a certain level of collective empathy for what our community and the diaspora uh, around the world and Israel itself is going through uh, with all kinds of bumps and bumps is too mundane a word, with all kinds of difficulties. I do sense an understanding of the profound existential pain that Israel is dealing with and that we're all dealing with. Are there within that constant contradictions, good and bad faith errors made by the federal and our own provincial governments with respect to understanding the burden on Israel and uh, and the terrorist nature of the attacks on it? Of course. But to a certain extent, I feel that uh, there has been a collective level of empathy that is almost better than I, I think I might have initially expected, with all of the sadness and pain that we continue to deal with in that context. I think that those words are important. I think I've heard those words, sadness, pain, uh, from our political leaders, which will bring in Emma now from the um, progressive left side of our panel. What has impressed you the most about how Canada is coming through this politically? I think Canada has come forward with some of the more balanced statements and more balanced positions than many other countries. I find that they're walking, it's a thin line, right? And I feel like Canada is walking it better than a lot of other places. But I do find that there's a lot of ignorance out there that the government and the media isn't working to correct. 
No one would love a ceasefire more than Israel. But no one is talking about the fact that Hamas leaders have repeatedly said that October 7th was a dress rehearsal, that they plan to do it again and again and again. No one is calling on Hamas to surrender. I haven't heard that from a single government official. Everyone is saying, you know, Israel's overreacting and Israel's doing too much force and Israel needs to stand down. But I haven't heard a single person in power say we call on Hamas to surrender and we call on them to return the hostages. I need to make a little point of order there because I think in the recent statement just two days ago, we're, we're taping this before Christmas break, Melanie Jolie's statement that came out yesterday did say that Hamas needs to release all the hostages, stop fighting, that's it. And so I think in that very... And this this came, so we might as well tell our listeners, though you probably all have heard it already, um, this came after that video, thank you. It was like a cameo that you pay for and then they do a birthday wish for you. Thank you, Canada, for voting um, uh, to... Uh, uh, call for a ceasefire with Australia and other nations at the UN. Uh, thank you, Canada, for supporting Hamas. Uh, and this was so shockingly embarrassing for Canada, I think, that I'd love to hear what you guys thought about this video and the thank you from Hamas and what this means here now. So anybody can start. I mean, it, this is such a tough game. It's a tough game. And I mean, in my experience in politics, before you open up your mouth, you have to build the credibility with those audiences you want to convince to have what comes out of your mouth heard. And when I say that, it doesn't require credibility from only your allies, but from your adversaries. Your allies are on your side already. And what I'm getting at is that for Canada or any government to be making, delivering messages that are heard, that are positive and accurate regarding Israel, you have to have established your credibility on the international stage as a player, which to start with is somewhat difficult for Canada, but also as a voice uh, that ha reflects some empathy and understanding for those who we might, or we might properly consider adversaries. That's a terribly tough balancing act. And... From that point of view, uh, I would guess that if you were to see major polls on the perception of Canada with all its uh, equivocating and so on uh, towards Israel and the Israel-Hamas war, you would get a very substantial majority believing that Canada was very, very much in Israel's corner and in the corner of human rights and fighting terrorism. Do they deserve that moniker? Perhaps. I kind of think with a lot of errors they do. But that it requires building that credibility, and, and uh, that credibility was obviously deeply hurt by Hamas uh, throwing its congratulations at Canada. But in a convoluted way, based on what I've just said, that statement suggested that Canada had found its way into the game. It's a very, very tough equation to, to solve. Are you speaking about the fact that before this video, Canada was um, definitely had, and Trudeau's all said this, and you can all weigh in if you remember, he's always condemned the attacks, called them terrorists, uh, has never said the word ceasefire until now. 
he tried to, I watched him once live from Washington. He started saying this and then he went humanitarian pause. Like I actually was, I taped that because I remember him trying not to say the word ceasefire and now they've moved. I just wonder what you make of the shift. So I'll open it up to Emma and Steve. This, is there a shift in Canada's foreign policy? And if so, why now? Absolutely, there's a shift. And with the level of, of death in Palestine, I don't see how there couldn't be. And I think we should stop seeing ceasefire as a dirty word, but put the blame on Hamas and ask them to stand down first. Because as soon as they stand down, as soon as they ceasefire, then there can be a conversation. Um, but they can't. we can't have Israel stand down and just allow Hamas to destroy them. That's So it depends on how you're using ceasefire. And if you're truly calling on Hamas to surrender, and that doesn't just mean stop firing. That means walk out, face international law, face face what they've done, and you're calling on them for a true surrender, then that's a different situation than just saying people are dying in Palestine and Israel has to stop at risk to their own people. Why was there a shift now? I mean, sorry. Okay, so let me let me try that again. So I think we're seeing a lot of protests. There are protests in Young Dundas Square almost every single weekend. Huge protests. Montreal. Montreal too, huge ones. Yeah, speaking all the time. Speaking on Calgary, speaking on, Vancouver, everywhere. Speaking on behalf of myself and not the Durham District School Board, I can also tell you that there are regular walkouts by students across our board. Um, it's been very triggering and traumatizing to students and staff in the Durham region. Um, but I think there is a collective pressure. And I think that the government is seeing that and acknowledging the sheer volume of people calling for peace in Palestine. Stephen? I think there's two things at play. Our listeners also need to remember that for about 20 to 25 years, we've been saying there were unbalanced and unfair votes by Canada at the UN. And the voting record was not always stellar at the UN when it came to Israel and questions around Israel. And these were votes under... Liberal Party of Canada in government, the Conservative Party of Canada in government. So I just want to level set with it. But I think Emma hit the nail on the head. There are two sides to this. There's the international side of the issue that our hearts go out um, both to the Israelis who are living under constant threat, those who are still kidnapped and those who've died in captivity. Let's call it what it is. You can also want there to be peace and security in Palestine without threatening Israel and for the next generation of Palestinians and the next generation of Israelis to not know from war and come across and being an honest person with that. But here's the flip side. Politics is also domestic. And I think what we've seen recently, and you can use numerous issues, members of parliament, listen to their constituency offices, they read their emails, they see what's going on, and there have been a lot of protests on one side and protests on the other. And if we're seeing a bit of a shift on how things are going, it's the tumultuous life of an elected official and a government 
trying to deal with foreign policy and domestic policy. And that's why I brought up the fact that Canada's record has not been stellar with UN votes historically. There have been blips where this prime minister for a period of time was more supportive than that prime minister. But, you know, 20, 25 years, if we added up all the votes, the votes from a Jewish community point of view have been more one-sided against than one-sided in favor. Well, let's talk about that because, for example, in the last few months, um, there, you mentioned all these protests. Toronto police came out recently saying they had to man- manage 248 protests since October 7th, right in Toronto. So figure that out all across Canada. But then weren't there also members of parliament had to close their offices in Montreal because, and also Toronto too, they got protests. David, I think if I remember Anthony Housefather's office, Rachel Bendayan's office was protested, sit-ins. Is this having an impact, do you think, from the Montreal area MPs and from the Quebec support, where there's a huge Muslim population and a small Jewish one? Yeah, I mean, uh, we'd have to reserve a couple of hours to look at Quebec-Ottawa relations, so I won't even attempt to get into those dynamics. Um, Quebecers pay much more attention to how their own government, good or bad, uh, handles these situations, even when they're in areas outside of provincial jurisdictions, such as international affairs. And sorry, doesn't Quebec have a trade office in Israel? They were about to open one. We worked, worked very hard in my eight years in, in government, to, uh, in, in National Assembly to make that happen. Uh, and it's on hold because it was about to open in the weeks before the tragic uh, uh, attacks of, uh, uh, of October 7th. I mean, I think there's, you know, the same dynamics are basically at work here, like anywhere else in the country, perhaps to a certain extent even more so MPs like, and particularly Anthony, showed tremendous courage. Uh, they have their constituency, with them, which in Anthony's case is majority Jewish, but he's a member of Canada's parliament and very much on the public scene as, as a major committee chair and so on. The courage he's shown in being unequivocal in his uh, denunciations of what's happened and about, uh, of any equivocations, even by the government he's part of, um, is quite remarkable in a difficult situation. Now, he knows that when the doors close in caucus, that's right, there are many MPs, fellow MPs, who represent and are part of uh, Muslim and Arab communities. So quite legitimately, in the kind of democracy we're all so proud of, these issues require a give and take and a tug and pull and uh, less than satisfactory results across the board. And And I do think that's what we're seeing Again, I, first of all, I don't. I really want to make sure I'm not sounding like an apologist for Justin Trudeau because I'm not enormously impressed with how he's handled himself. But se- uh, nor do I want to sound like I'm looking at this through rose-colored glasses. But part of the difficult and messy debate, I think, is is a manifestation of the kind of Israel we've all dreamed of and boasted about since its inception a country that broaches no limits on free speech, on angry and vociferous uh, expression of ideas that can border on on intolerance. Israel has set that democratic standard for itself, and without getting into politics, the current government has not embraced that kind of uh, openness. But Israel itself demands, has since its inception, demanded the kind of debate that, it, that feeds the difficult uh, uh, and wavering 
government action I think we see in a diverse country like Canada. Right, but you're living in the in like I would have to say maybe in terms of sheer volume, Toronto has more. But you're living in ground zero for Molotov cocktails. Uh, I I don't have to go on. You know what I'm talking about. The whole country has watched Montreal. I went myself personally in November to go and and do a. Uh, an on-the-ground uh, look on what my hometown has become. So, what's you know, what's the Quebec government's position? They're like, no, no, no that's Ottawa. We're with you. Like, they're they're actually uh, much more consistently pro-Israel. I think in their statements, have they not? And Valerie Plant too. Yeah, what I think has been encouraging the face of I mean, unspeakably obscene acts of anti-Semitism and and and, and direct physical threat. Which I which just tears us apart. It's it's obscene. It's terrible. If there's any uh, measure of hope in that, it's uh, and I think uh, people like Ita Yudin uh, at, at Siege and others would testify to this. It's the open door and active cooperation they've seen, particularly from the chief of police of uh, of Montreal, from frankly a premier who I'm not very proud of, but from a premier and a mayor. Uh, again, there have been some equivocations here and there, but with respect to on-the-ground responses and efforts to pra- practically counter uh, these acts of well, uh, terrorism that luckily haven't resulted in any deaths, those governments, uh, government uh, uh, interveners have been quite present and active. So there has been some sense of understanding of how abhorrent these acts are, and mostly encouraging statements fighting them. You haven't heard the kind of moral relativism, at least, thankfully, on those acts that can be so galling, well, or, you know, linking them in some way uh, as almost, and in any way almost legitimizing them because of what what might be happening in, 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 uh, in Gaza and so on. You're not hearing that, which gives me some level of hope. But obviously those acts are deeply concerning and you wonder about the deeply seated roots that allow them to happen. I want to, David just mentioned about sort of moral equivalency, but in terms of, I mean, there have been members of parliament who've been tweeting things that are actually denial or lies that are from the NDP. Uh, There are people that are saying that Israeli women were not raped. And so we're talking about bumps. I think that this is another example. And the NDP has a lot to wear for that. Yeah, I certainly haven't been silent on the NDP historically when it comes to anti-Semitism. I think it is unconscionable that they allowed Sarah Gemma to be elected into caucus in the first place. We're talking provincial NDP for our listeners, not federal, but I was also talking federal MPs who tweeted lies. Fair enough. So I, I'm just going to say Sarah Jama did nothing differently than she did before being elected to office. She continued to support the same causes, be the same person, and endorse the same things that she always had. None of it came as a surprise to anyone, um, including the NDP, who I would imagine vetted her quite thoroughly. So her conduct does reflect on the NDP because they decided it wasn't a deal breaker to her. Fortunately, they did throw her out, although they they chirped her over the fact that she was giving them surprises, not over her views. They were very careful to say that, that it was only the fact that she was blindsiding them with things rather than giving them a heads up in advance. And not once have they ever condemned any of the things that they said. So our federal 
Are federal NDPs tweeting denial on things? Yes, absolutely. But I think Sarah Jama is the most glaring example of anti-Semitism because you can be pro-Palestine without being anti-Semitic. And she is so far over that line into anti-Semitism that it's outrageous that she was ever allowed to be elected as any member of any party. Stephen, um, I haven't talked to you about this yet, so let's let's bring you in. Uh, look, every party, I've never been an elected official. I've worked as political staff. What happens in caucus should stay in caucus. When a leader tells a member to do something, members of caucus should do what the leader or the leadership say for them to do. Let me contrast leadership styles. I don't want to get into the inner workings of the NDP because I'm not privy to what the exact things are. I have my own opinions on Sarah Jama, the candidate, the MPP. Uh, being from Hamilton, it touches very close to home, the riding of Hamilton Center, Andrea Horvath's old riding, David Christofferson's old riding, etc., but I just want to focus on the leadership style differences. In Premier Ford's first term, he turfed people out of caucus. You went against what the Premier said, what the party thrust was. You weren't a member of caucus anymore. Right. And now Roman Baber is running as a conservative candidate against Yara Sachs, which is one of my questions <laughs> down the road. Exactly. Um, but Prime Minister Harper has had, uh, I believe, under Prime Minister Harper's tenure, there were members of the Conservative Party. Under every liberal leader, and I'm not saying this facetiously, there have been those who spoke against the values of the party and were removed from the party, etc. What we saw play out was po potentially some of the leadership struggles and testing a brand new leader. We also have to remember, Marit Stiles had just been elected leader of the party and was challenged in a way of caucus unity that seasoned party leaders can struggle with as well. Or um, the federal law liberals, we should mention Jody Wilson-Raybould and the Minister of Health booted out for being whistleblowed. We won't go there. There's a whole book that she wrote about. To me, as an outsider looking in, but someone who deals with Queen's Park a lot, it's more of a question of... Um, I'm going to be interested to see Bonnie Crombie, the new provincial liberal leader, current mayor of Mississauga, should a challenge arise for her before she gets a seat in the legislature, will she be able to rule um, authoritatively with caucus to have one voice? I know I'm going a bit off topic from the, from the global issues, but that's a giant issue at, at Queen's Park right now. It took the message away from some issues, challenges that Premier Ford and his government were having. And for about three weeks, the spotlight was on the provincial NDP. If you're a conservative, you loved it. Right, because we're talking about the Greenbelt scandal. But now he's got the Jewish vote. When I was at the Israeli consulate the other day, Doug Ford was the guest of honor for the Hanukkah lighting ceremony. And he basically feels that he's an honorary Jew, not only because he's always been, you know, standing with Israel over the past few months when the, the war happened, but... <laughs> He said that his parents are the only, well, he is now the only WASP owner of a condo on, in Hallandale, Florida. And everyone else in that building is Jewish. So I looked up the address. Anyone wants to know? He actually invited everyone to come visit him. So, but aside from that, with, with, with the, the caucus unity, let's talk about some of the players. You mentioned Anthony, house father David. He has been against the government, not just for the liberal policy on Israel, Palestine, or Hamas now, but also on language on English language rights, he has spoken out and 
how is this going to cost him? Um, he lost a portfolio, uh, sorry, a junior portfolio, did he not, because of, of this? Is that linked? I would suggest without a doubt, what's interesting just from the political point of view, each of the examples just about that we've mentioned where someone has been banished for, from caucus, it's not necessarily for offering controversial public views. Uh, it's for uh, defying their own leader. So it's usually been small, p, uh, pe- rather petty politics as, that has resulted in slaps on the wrist. And yes, no doubt Anthony has paid a price for his insistence on independence on issues that matter to his, to his credit. There are issues uh, where he's not had to face distance in the riding because he's speaking four square in, uh, on positions that his constituents back but they remain courageous and, and morally uh, strong positions that he's taken at a political cost, and that's um, to his credit. But the criteria for judging all this, I think, have to be different when we're talking about overall how governments on an international issue respond, because those are about much wider politics. And, you know, having spent, you know, some 40 years representing our Jewish community, uh, community is a former director of a Canadian Jewish Congress and the English-speaking community as the head of two major organizations. You know, I've gotten uh, woefully comfortable with the notion of incremental change and very often positive change being nothing more than the absence of bad steps backwards. It's, it's not fun, but that very often is the life and reality of minority communities. So I do think we always have to be looking not, we have to have as our standard, obviously, what's morally right and absolutely morally right. We always have this sad obligation to understand that you're not going to reach those absolutes in real life because there are other, and yes, very legitimate and competing forces that require justice and equity as well. So it's never going to be a perfectly satisfactory battle. And it's very tough when the stakes are as high as, as they are in the deeply existential issues we're talking about. There have been calls for Anthony to cross the floor in the last few weeks. Come to the Tories because, or citizen independent. Have you heard about these? And what do you think the likelihood is that that or other people will follow him? First of all, I, I would suggest the likelihood would be zero, knowing Anthony. Um, second, I think it's, frankly, a facile and, and, and rather silly thing to say. Anthony has made public choices that, like I say, many would qualify, including me, as deeply honorable. He's made them and remained within the Liberal caucus, let's be fair. He's understood that there are some political costs that I think he's paid, with respect to advancing within that caucus, but he remains uh, uh, deeply involved as a member of the government side caucus by exercising uh, with by pulling the elastic pretty far, but by ex- exercising his rights within the governing caucus to suggest uh, that those deeply principled positions are impossible to take while he remains within his party is not fair. It's not true. What about? Um the, the next steps for this government in terms of January. I mean, the war is not going to end. We're going to have more. I guess you called the bumps. I like that. So we'll bumps. What do you think is going to be the next thing after the break? Uh, what are we going to see from the liberals 
And what we haven't also talked about how Poliev is tr- trying to get the Jewish vote. He invited us to a press conference, specifically called me. The office called me directly. I've never got a call before. Come to hear Pierre Poliev speak about stuff. And that, that was the famous press conference that um, he started going after a Canadian press reporter and calling her a liar and that they have to make three corrections when he was there to talk about Middle East policies. Um, can we talk, and I'll start with Stephen, of course, can we talk about how Polyev has been for the Jewish vote and Melissa Lantzman? And is this going to be enough to carry them into the next election with a solid Jewish vote the way Harper was when a lot of Jews switched because they were so fed up with the liberals on Israel? So I've been very impressed with Mr. Polyev, not just uh, speaking personally, not just over the last three weeks, but over the last five or six or seven months. And so we're seeing messaging, we're seeing um, commitment to ideals and commitment to policies that he needs to continue with to potentially win the next election. But now let's look at the Jewish community vote. There's no saying that we are within a couple of kilometers of Bathurst Street from Lake Ontario to Lake Simcoe when you look at Toronto, rather than being spread out about 10 or 15 ridings, we're about five, maybe six, going north on Bathurst Street. Mr. Polyev also needs the votes for many, many other Canadians in many ridings across Canada to not just have the most seats in the House, but to form a majority government, because whenever the next election happens, I don't know if it's a minority, if he can lead a minority um, and get the votes for the confidence. You know, recent polling shows that Mr. Polyev might be able to pick up 35 to 40 seats just in Ontario. If he does that, it will take him to Brian Mulroney territory from 1984 and one of the largest majorities in the history of Canada. There's a long time between elections. So Mr. Polyev and the Conservative Party are doing all the right things. They're being a thorn in the side of the government. They are presenting their views of better ideas of how to bring forward. But in Canada, it's a double election issue. Question number one, do you like the current people? Yes or no? If you say no, the second question is, will you vote for someone else? And we saw with Mr. Scheer and Mr. O'Toole, the first question was, we don't like Trudeau. The second question, not enough moved to vote for that party. So, I'm trying to separate the Jewish community's support for Polyev and the Conservatives, which we've seen trajectory of for the last 15 or 20 years. It's not just new that last week they're moving over, but for those who would like to see a change in government, it's not just the Jewish community who will vote. That being said, Prime Minister Trudeau is one of the greatest campaigners I've ever seen. He gets into the corners. He puts his elbows up. He can be scrappy with the rest of them. Do not count out Prime Minister Trudeau until Prime Minister Trudeau says he's not running again. Because a Trudeau-Polyev race, I don't know how it's going to end. I have my opinion of who I would like, but there's a lot of time to still be uh, take place before the next election. So do you think that that Polyev is courting the Jewish vote and 
will it make a difference? I know you said there's five, but Montreal has a bunch. There's elsewhere. There's Winnipeg has a couple, right? There's eight Jewish MPs now. Is this going to be a one-issue vote for Jewish voters if there was an election tomorrow? I think that's the right question. It may be, but even if every Jewish voter in Canada voted for the Conservative Party, there are not enough seats for Mr. Polyev to form government based on that. Therefore, I think you're going to see expanded issues and... Although a lot of my friends say they're single issue voters, no one, not a lot of them end up being just single issue voters when they go in to mark their ballots. Had they been, John Tory's faith-based education policy would have become law in 2007. Hmm. Emma? I think, I definitely think he is courting the Jewish vote. Um, I agree with Stephen that that will not win him an election. And I know that as someone who spends all my time in leftist spaces... Um, I spend a lot of time in spaces that are not safe for me. And I would say the left in general is in a bad spot right now when it comes to anti-Semitism. And so the Jews that I know on the left, we're in a really bad position. There's no way I can support an NDP government. I, I cannot physically bring myself to vote NDP. But as a leftist, I can't bring myself to vote conservative either and my local MP has been one of the people calling for a ceasefire from day one. I'm going to spoil my ballot in the next election unless something dramatic changes. And I hate that. But I don't see any way for me to vote in a way where I keep my conscience intact. And that's what we're struggling with over on the left is that there is no place that we can cast our votes in a way that has us leaving the polls not feeling awful about ourselves. And I think that's a tragedy for our community. David, you look very upset. You, you agree, it is a tragedy. But where, where, where is the conservative in all this? And how is Polyev coming out smelling good, bad in this Israel-Hamas situation? Very specifically, I don't think he... Uh, uh, I, I think his pitbull persona is what comes to the fore in in Quebec. Uh, Quebec collectively, with all its differences, is a progressive place. And I don't, he's got uh, very little traction in uh, the metropolitan Montreal community, perhaps a little more in the Jewish community, but our Quebec Jews are distinct too. <laughs> and I'm not sure they're watching him that closely. Two things from a, a purely sort of mathematical, tactical uh, point of view as far as Polyev is concerned. First of all, that majority we, we talked about might eventually hinge on whether he pierces in Quebec or not, whether he makes a difference. And if he does, it will not be at all uh, because of our Jewish community. It'll be because of his small, I think it's big C conservative, but his approach that will resonate in the regions. And for that to be his underlying message delivered to Quebec voters, he's not running, I promise you, to accept an invitation to speak in a synagogue in Quebec. He was there for Hanukkah, though, but that was different. Well, it's a little different, yeah. Um, so I don't think uh, whatever efforts he might be making to endear himself to the Jewish community are, are being seen that clearly. It's my guess, to be fair. I'm not actively involved in our organized Jewish community at this point in my life. The second mathematical part of it that I was going to mention is uh, uh, that the Jewish community vote with respect to any prospective and possible conservative gains is not a player. The only place they could conceivably be a player 
is in the writing of Mount Royal, where Anthony has done such an heroic job. I'm not being partisan. There's no way that a major, even a major name, and I don't think they'd secure one, uh, a Jewish candidate in Mount Royal would succeed. The only other writings where our community is strong would be on the West Island in a very, very diverse community, and the proportion of the Jewish vote there would not swing that riding. If you look at the other current MP, Rasha uh, Mendan, to her great credit, one uh, coalition of voters that went far beyond uh, a relatively small uh, a Jewish community in her riding uh, in terms of a voter turnout. Um, so there aren't electoral issues that come to play for uh, that would affect the uh, eventual results uh, based on our Jewish community's electoral uh, weight, if you like. One thing to keep our eyes on is Carolyn Bennett recently resigned from, uh, uh, has announced a resignation with the House of Commons, which puts Toronto St. Paul's in play. I believe the Prime Minister has six or eight months to call a by-election there. Toronto St. Paul's is the fifth or sixth largest Jewish community based on riding in Canada. I think I'm about right there. Should a single-issue campaign take place, should the Jewish community be motivated to vote. You know, you can win a by-election with 15% turnout or less. So we, you might be able to see it in a by-election, not in a general election, and it's something to keep our eyes open to. That's really, really interesting, right? Because it's a, a referendum at the moment, temperature taking. Okay, we have a few minutes left. There's been so many other issues that happened this year, but like, I barely remember them. Do you remember the Nazi that got a standing ovation in Parliament, like in September, October? Remember that? Um, And the Duchenne Commission files that, were they going to release them? Were they not? And the then Speaker had to resign. Is the government even dealing with that whole question of do we release and and the fallout from this? I think in a lot of ways, and this sounds awful, the government gets to hide behind a really big news story. And sometimes you see governments blow up a story to slip something under the radar. And I think everyone right now is so focused on one other one issue that they're able to slide a lot of things through and get people to forget about things like a Nazi in the House of Commons. Because there's a big story occupying everyone's brain space. And it's a really good time for governments to do things that maybe aren't the most popular and take advantage of the fact that people are distracted. And I think a lot of people have forgotten the Nazi in the House of Commons because there's something big that's taken over. Everybody's forgotten. I I thought, uh, I believe it was B'nai Breath or it might have been Sija, but uh, was so, so smart in getting beyond... Well, it was more than noise. This was just such an appalling and ridiculous embarrassment. But by linking this to the lack of action on on the DeShane Commission conclusions, I thought that was so smart and constructive. Uh, But again, the story uh, focused on the crazy, outrageous, embarrassing incident itself. And uh, as will happen in the news cycle, any level of concrete complementary consequences fell by the wayside. I think our official community spokespeople did such a good job on on saying, well, actions will speak louder now. And can we look at the 
uh, continued and rather sad, somewhat improved, but sad record of Canada with respect to uh, continuing the prosecution of, uh, of Nazis on our own soil. I don't know that there's any traction left, which is very unfortunate. Uh, predictions for 2024. In the first month of 2024, mostly Parliament doesn't sit for the Christmas break. They come back in the middle. What are the stories you're looking for or what are the, the main issues that we're going to see? We'll start with Emma, if you're OK with your ready. I think in the beginning of 2024, the story is still going to be the war. Um, but I think it may it may shift to be more on the impacts of the war here. There's been a lot of anti-Semitism. You know, cases have risen. My daughter's school bus, someone was chanting Hitler. There's been a lot going on. And I think we're going to see a lot more of those stories start to come. But I think the war is going to continue to be the focus for our community leading into 2024 and, frankly, as long as it lasts. Thank you. David, what's the story that you think is still going to be on your radar? Mm -hmm. It's so Difficult to know. I, I, I agree that the, the war will be obviously uh, tragically top of mind. I think the, the shadow of our southern neighbor will start to cover more uh, sunlight as months go on. We're not that far away from uh, uh, you know having the world's largest democracy continue to operate on, on absurd and sort of mind-bending parameters, which you know have a very possible future president uh, you know wearing a pinstripe pajamas as he goes to his inauguration. I mean, it's just such a weird situation that will continue to take up a lot of room, including, I think, uh, uh, increasing room on the issue we're talking about. The Americans are, are, are being quite public about setting conditions on their continued and crucial financial and defense support to Israel. So, so I think that story is going to get bigger. Um, uh, what can one do except hope that uh, these incidents of, uh, of anti-Semitism start to abate? Uh, they clearly are linked to the headlines uh, it, in some ways. So if those headlines internationally get better, can we hope uh, for uh, uh, life on the ground to get better? Uh, we just have to hope. Uh, and I guess the only other thing I would add is that uh, that... Uh, that the, the the cooperation of of government and civic authorities in fighting anti anti-semitism will remain so so crucial as uh, as the months move forward the only other corollary i'd add because the, the, the it remains that a majority of quebec's jewish community is english speaking uh it's been a very very bad year uh uh with respect to being an english speaking quebecer um, and uh, uh, there have been some terrible uh, decisions made by the current government, uh, one for which the regulations are not yet out, this terrible university decision. And uh, so uh, I think Jews, like other English-speaking Quebecers, will be watching to see if somehow uh, that retrograde approach to language uh, that this government has embraced uh, eases up a bit, and I'm, I'm not sure I have any reason for optimism. No, we just that. quickly say that it's the, they've tripled tuition, I think it is, for English language <laughs> university students coming from abroad, or abroad, from outside Quebec. <laughs> Stephen, uh, can you give me your prediction? What's the story that, or two, that you're looking at for 2024? In addition to what everybody else said, a year ago, no one had John Tory resigning and Olivia Chow becoming mayor of Toronto. So there's always a political surprise. What I'm looking for 
federally is does the prime minister take a walk in the snow in mm-hmm. February or March? Uh, if he remain, if he decides not to, obviously his father took a walk in the snow in February to step down uh, as prime minister. Um, does the budget pass in March, April? And what happens then? The tie-in to what's going on with Israel is what happens to the front bench of the current cabinet should Mr. Trudeau announce he's leaving for who runs because you cannot stay a senior cabinet minister and run for leader at the same time. So I'm going to be watching that. What I'm also looking at, looking forward to and hoping for in one of my stories would be is the continued federal, provincial, municipal support that we are seeing not just on issues of concern to our community being Israel, but we've seen a lot of housing announcements recently in the, in Ontario where the on, province, the feds, and the city are working together to build truly affordable housing and with programs to help those who need the help the most. So I'm hoping that continues. Um, and my last one is, I'm looking forward to the political surprise. There is a giant political surprise every year. None of us know what it is. I come back to no one had John Tory leaving as mayor of Toronto in February 2023 on their bingo card around Christmas time and New Year's Eve uh, 2022. All right. It's been an honor to have you guys again. And I hope that next year it'll be a lot easier and quieter than it is for all the Jewish people and all of us watching as we go into 2024. Thank you so much, David Birnbaum in Montreal, Emma Cunningham in Pickering, and Stephen Adler in Toronto, our CJN political panel, signing off. Thank you so much. Thank you. Best to all of you. That's what Jewish Canada sounds like for this episode of the CJN Daily. We're sponsored by Metropia. Integrity, community, quality, and customer care. You can always write to us and let us know what you think of the political panel's take on the big stories of 2023 and 2024. As always, I'm at ebessner at thecjn.ca. Now, this podcast is number 482 of the CJN Daily, and with your help, we'll hit the million download mark in the new year. So if you like what we do, why not donate to the CJN before the end of the month of December and you get your tax receipt for the 2023 tax return? The link to donate is in our show notes, or you can just go to www.thecjn.ca backslash donate. Until next time, thanks for listening to the CJN Daily. The Dunfield Retirement Residence offers customized living options to complement your independent, active lifestyle. Welcome home. Welcome to the Dunfield. Visit us at thedunfield.com to book a personal tour.